We're going to hear God's Word now, and my title this morning is not a very imaginative one. It's the rest of the story of Israel, past and future, and it's part 18 of our series. So our goal this morning is to see how God's promises and prophecies to Israel fit with the New Testament and beyond. And lead, that will lead to an outburst of praise in our hearts. So, quick recap for the last couple of messages. We looked at the Exodus theme and how the, the metaphor of coming out of slavery to freedom with God's power and then going through the wilderness is pervasive in the scriptures. And Old and New Testament is a picture of God's saving acts. And we saw how our experience now is very much in the wilderness where we're going to a promised land, but we're dependent on God moment by moment to keep us in the difficulties that we're in. And then we looked at the story of Israel and the heart of God and the amazing uh, compassion God has for his people. We just stayed with some of those verses where God is pouring out his heart uh, in grieving for the way they've treated him, but his chesed love is determined to love them to the end, no matter what. And just extraordinary stories of his love. And so today we're going to look at the rest of the story of Israel, and we're going to start by looking between the Testaments. We're then going to look at Jesus taking on the role of the nation of Israel, and then the future of Israel, and then our response at the end. So, uh, I'd like to start by looking at um, the period just after we finished last time. We talked about them coming back from captivity. 42,000 people returned to Jerusalem and the surrounding area, and they rebuilt Jerusalem and the temple. And this period, starting around... Um, 539 BC, right up to the time of Jesus, we call it the intertestamental period because it's the period between the Old and New Testaments. And um, the, the Jewish writings at the time, their records tell us that the prophetic voice ceased at that time. After Nehemiah and Ezra, we, we don't get any more writing from the scripture. We have some books from that time, which we call the Apocrypha. They're writings. The, the Jews never had them at the same level as the other, as the Old Testament. And Jesus never quoted from them. But they're really historical records. And some of them are a little bit weird, but they're not the same. They're not held by generally by Christians as the same level as the Bible. Um, so we're going to look at, uh, since we don't have any books written during that period, we're going to have to look at prophecy written about that period. And the most uh, comprehensive prophecy is from the book of Daniel. And there's a wonderful outline that he gives for this period, which we're going to use. And it begins with a dream that King Nebuchadnezzar can't interpret himself and asks Daniel to interpret and can't even remember the dream. And Daniel tells him what it is and explains it to him. He says, you saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you and its appearance was frightening. 
The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And then it continues, As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So that's the dream. And then, of course, the difficult part is giving the interpretation. And uh, so Daniel, um, oh, this was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. So he begins, You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. So he is the head of the Babylonian empire. He's the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And so we have the head of gold, this artist reconstruction, and this is representing Nebuchadnezzar and particularly the Babylonian Empire. And then we have the chest of silver, and this is, we're going to hear what that represents in a minute. And then we have thighs of bronze, and then finally we have the legs and feet of iron. We'll come to that in just a moment. And there should be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. So this might not be as golden and glorious a kingdom, but it's, it's strong. It shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. So the previous ones crushed by this. And as you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom, but some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. So at the end, where it gets to the feet, maybe a little bit of uh, of um, weakness there. <clears throat> and as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. So there we have the... Uh, the feet of this statue. And then he goes on. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, 
the silver and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain at in its interpretation sure. So the last kingdom then was represented by this stone, a little stone from the mountain that was not cut by human hand. So we're going to look now, I don't have a, an animation for you this time, but I've got a little chart for you to try and put these things together. So down the left hand side, we have the dates. They're all BC and they go right up to um, the kingdom of Christ coming, which birth of Jesus around 4 BC. So 629 BC, Daniel is writing this. We have king of Babylon in full strength then. <coughs> and um, that's during the time of the book of, of um, Daniel actually gets taken over by the Medes and Persians. And so we have um, uh, 538, the silver chest, Medes and the Persians. And during that time, we have the return from captivity that I talked about last time. So they return from captivity during the time of the Medes and the Persians. Cyrus the Mede, if you remember, was, was, gave the permission for that. And the books of the Bible written, Haggai, Ezra, Nehemiah, specifically about this event, these events. And then Esther, uh, actually written still back in, back in the land, back in the uh, capital city of the empire. And uh, those are the people that didn't come back from captivity. So uh, then we get, what happened then? So let me just fill you in some of the story. The Israelites who didn't go back to the land, many of them still worshipped God and they set up the synagogue system. And they no longer spoke um, Hebrew. They spoke Aramaic at that time. And that was the language of their captors. And these synagogues were for the reading of the scripture in Hebrew and then it's being translated into Aramaic so people could read. And that was a weekly synagogue and the synagogues right across the empire. And uh, those people, by the time of Jesus, were people who were coming in annually to the feasts. And that's how at the day of Pentecost they could hear the gospel. But they were the Jews who were still in exile, um, but still retaining their faith. But if we go, if we look back in, um, back at what's happening in, in Israel at this time, we have, uh, Jerusalem rebuilt, temple completed around about 445 BC. So in the middle of this period here, uh, with the, um, Medes and Persians. And, uh, during this time, you've probably heard of uh, Socrates, the great philosopher, and his student Plato, uh, another amazing philosopher, and then his student um, Aristotle. These are Greek philosophers, and they would have schools, and people would come to their schools. And the last of these, Aristotle, had a school, and one of his students, a teenage student, um of Aristotle just lapped up his teaching, just loved the teaching. And the center of Aristotle's teaching was unity. We have to try and bring everything together and fit it together and, and bring it into unity. Well, anyway, this, uh, this student, this teenage student, when he turned 20, his dad died. Now his dad happened to be the king, King Philip. And so 
at um, he had to stop being a student, became king after his father. And he decided that he was actually going to build a colonial power that stretched right across the known world. And his name was Alexander. He became known as Alexander the Great, because he built an extraordinary empire that went, um, his colonial power went from India over one side, Af- down into Africa, across to, um, to almost to Italy. And his goal in this was that he would bring everything to unity. So not diversity, but unity. So the same language spoken everywhere, the same culture everywhere. Greek culture would be spread everywhere across the kingdom. So he would bring in centers for learning, centers for, for, um, trying to spread the, the, the religious teaching, everything. And this was very, very heavily pushed. So uh, the idea then would be that there would be one culture st- across from India, across almost to Italy, down into Africa. And he was extraordinarily successful. So he began at 20, and by 24, he defeated the, the Persians, the, the, the Medes and Persians. This was the great world empire. He'd taken them down by the time he was 24. Um, he died at 32, having captured Babylon. And... Um, he left his kingdom to four generals and unfortunately they fought amongst themselves and there was horrible fighting and in the end two of them became the dominant powers one of them was egypt ptolemy in egypt and then one of them in syria and the north which was the the seleucids and this and Israel was in like in the middle of that and they were they were the buffer zone that were taken over by one power or the other oh i should have said um, when Alexander got to Jerusalem, we're told that uh, he had a dream and bef- before he went in and when he came in, he saw the high priest and he recognized the high priest from his dream and he was m- very impacted by that. And then, according to Josephus, they took him and they showed him the prophecy in in Daniel that referred to him and another prophecy that describes him as a ram moving so fast his feet does, doesn't touch the ground and in, and destroying the kingdom of the Medes and Persians, which is represented by a goat with two horns. And apparently, so we're told he was very impressed by that and decided that he would treat Israel very leniently. And they would, they got off, they, they were, they had a period of peace. But once he died and his generals took over, Israel was in this period between the two. And, uh, eventually the, the northern ones, the Syrian ones, uh, the Seleucids, uh, took over and they became the dominant power. And they were very, very strong on making Greek culture what they called Hellenization dominant. And they became brutal in trying to remove any traces of Judaism. So if you were caught worshipping on the Sabbath or having any scripture or even being circumcised, you could, that could be the death penalty for it. And, uh, the, the leader of this group at this time was called Antiochus Epiphanes. That's the Greek for God manifest. And um, he was like a Hitler in terms of the way he he treated the Jews at that time. And uh, his, his treatment was so cruel that um, 
uh, he it it caused a revolt against him. At one point, he sacrificed a pig on the altar of the temple to desecrate it. And that was prophesied in Daniel. It was called the abomination that makes desolate. So there was this, it was ritually desolated. So, um, a group of people, uh, led by a man called Judas Maccabeus, and he's nothing to do with the Judas at Jesus' time. He's a, he was a very good leader and he led what's called the Maccabean revolt. And they managed to overthrow this horrible Antiochus Epiphanes and bring freedom. And they had to uh, re-sanctify um, the temple. And when they did that, they had to light uh, a lamp and there was only enough oil for the lamp to burn for a day. And while they were trying to get more oil, um, the story is that the lamp supernaturally burned for a week until they had more oil. And so that is something that's celebrated uh, every year by and Jews across the world today. Hanukkah is a celebration of that event that happened in the um, in the temple. So uh, at this time also we have the Pharisees began to be um, to come to prominence, and the Pharisees uh, we think of them very negatively in Jesus' time, but actually the Pharisees back then were the really the, the really godly ones who really wanted to to get people worshiping God again, and it gradually degener- degenerated and became legalism. But right back at that time, they were really the good guys. Uh, so there was a period uh, of freedom right up to um, to uh, the Romans came in. There was a period of relative freedom. Well, the Romans came in, of course, and they were quite brutal in terms of their their crushing military might. And they just uh, took everything before them and Israel were once again subjected to them. So uh, then uh, so that was the Romans then in 63 BC. So that's a quick overview of what happened during the time between the last Old Testament book the first New Testament book, and as given us in prophetic form by this image of Daniel. So that was our first point between the Testaments. What I'd like to do now is to look at the time of Jesus. We've we've gone between the Testaments, look at the time of Jesus, then we're going to move on to the future, and then we're going to reflect on what it means to us. So, uh, I'm going to uh, to have some quotes here from um, from N.T. Wright, um, the theologian, and some beautiful things that he said. Very, very powerful. And uh, he says Israel's purpose was to bear God's image and tend to God's world, a direct echo of Adam's purpose. Yeah, that's right. They were. Adam was given a garden. Israel was given a land. Adam received commands. Israel received commands. Adam disobeyed and was exiled. He was put out of the garden. Israel disobeyed and they were exiled. The God of Israel came in the person of the Messiah and the Spirit to do what Adam and Israel could not do. So what Jesus did when he came was actually take on their roles and do what they failed to do. In this sense, Jesus and the Spirit did not replace Israel, 
but fulfilled Israel's vocation. This is a very clear way of put it. They didn't replace them. He he didn't. Jesus didn't replace them. He actually fulfilled the role that they had and the role that Adam and Eve had as well. So I think that puts it very well. The key idea is that he personally fulfilled what they as a nation were told to do. And uh, one of those things was to extend the promises to the whole world. Now, this is very interesting. Um, that Abraham was promised a land and he was given the land and it was quite well defined exactly where between the rivers and the Mediterranean and where it was. He was, it was quite well defined. Um, but in Isaiah chapters 42 through to 56, we get what is called the servant songs. They're songs about God talking about my servant or what my servant is going to do. And on the surface, these are a call for the nation of Israel to do the things that they're supposed to do on this chart. They're to be God's servants, but it becomes apparent that actually it's Jesus who takes these things up. And although Israel is called to be God's servant, Jesus is the servant. And you'll see this very quickly once I start reading it. Uh, so Psalm 42, first of the servant songs. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I'll give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. These are verses that are applied in the New Testament to Jesus. To open the eyes that are blind to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Beautiful words, and they are given to Israel, but taken up by Jesus. We can can look at uh, Isaiah 49, which is really very interesting. You are my servant, Israel. And and skip a few verses. Now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, that Israel may be gathered to him. So this is talking about gathering in those who are dispersed, still dispersed around the empire, gathering Jacob back, gathering Israel back, gathering the people of God back. And so this is what they're to do. He says, is it too light a thing that you should be my servant? Is it, hang on, is this too light? Is this too small a thing to raise up the tribes of Jacob? Is that maybe a little bit small? Uh, to bring back the preserved of, of Jacob, of Israel? Maybe you need something heavier. I will make you as a light for the nations. In other words, not just Jacob and Israel, but a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So now we have the servant is called to extend the promises originally given to Abraham to actually to all of the nations and the inheritance, not just to be this land, but the inheritance to be the whole of the earth, the end of the earth. So this is... um, this is the 
kind of thing that's being prophesied in these servant songs, and not just here, but other places in the Old Testament, that there's a call on Israel, which actually is taken up by Jesus, to extend the promises from the original limited land and limited people to everywhere. And uh, N.T. Wright once again puts it so beautifully. He, Jesus, was in himself the true Israel, formed by scripture, bringing the kingdom to birth. When he spoke of the scripture needing to be fulfilled, e.g. Mark fourteen forty nine, he was not simply envisaging himself doing a few scattered and random acts, which corresponding to various distant and detached prophetic sayings. He was thinking of the entire storyline at last coming to fruition and of an entire world of hints and shadows now coming to plain statement and full light. And he goes on, This, I take it, is the deep meaning of of sayings like Matthew 5, 17 and 18, where Jesus insists that he has not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So that's... Um, that, uh, I think, really sums up the key for this, that, that Jesus was actually, as, as an Israelite, as a, a member of Israel, was to step up and do the things that a nation had failed to do, but do it as a member of Israel, as an Israelite. So that's what I'm going to say on this topic. We've looked at between the Testaments, and this is what I wanted to say about Jesus taking on the role of the nation. So we're doing a timeline here. Between the Testaments, uh, Jesus taking on the role, and now we're moving to the future of Israel from Jesus up until the end. <clears throat> and um, just to briefly give you the, the history, uh, after the time of the writings of the Bible, there was um, some very bad treatment of Israel by the Romans, just as Antiochus and Epiphanes had done similar things, very provocative. And this led to um, uh, rebels and military revolts. And in the end, um, the Israelites planned um, an attack on the Romans that was so well contrived that they, they required the Romans actually had to bring a third of their worldwide forces into this little country in order to quell it. Um, the Israelites thought at that time that the, the people that came, came from the Pharisees and, and others like them, they thought that um, by doing this, that God would come and step in on their side and rescue them from the Romans. This is why they, they stuck a pin in the lion. But that didn't happen. The lion turned and they were removed from their country, the country which was called Judea. They were called Jews because they lived in Judea and Judea was the southern kingdom of Judah. And most of them who were actually ethnically Jews were from Judah or Benjamin. And so that's where the name Jew comes from. So but the Romans renamed it Palestine because they didn't want any vestige. They, they wanted to destroy the nation. Then they, they, they just um, very, very brutally attempted to erase the nation. And uh, it was a horrific time. And uh, since that time, there's, the, there's been um, anti-Semitism 
on and off throughout history. It's been um, sometimes worse than others. Um, the the uh, um, particularly um, during the the when Europe was dominated by the Catholic Church, <clears throat> there was really a, a very very harsh amount of persecution. Um, things began to look better in the UK when um, Oliver Cromwell who was very keen on on religious toleration which was quite unusual at that time but they they they, they actually passed an act of parliament to um allow Jews in which was had a huge influx of Jews into the UK and um they they uh but that was just there was very patchy response across Europe and again we saw of what happened with the holocaust in Germany just horrific um persecution and and other things as well so so the the history of israel has been um just uh, very very hard since uh for the last 2000 years um but absolutely amazingly they've retained their ethnic identity like no other people group it's quite extraordinary how the ethnic jews have retained that identity so this brings us on to uh, the last question then. Is there a special future for ethnic Israel? Is there some special future that God has for them? And I'm going to say there are two extreme positions. <clears throat> One of them is what's called replacement theology. All the promises to Israel now belong to the church. So every single Old Testament promise Every New Testament promise to Israel, we are the Israel. We're the children of Abraham. You know, he is the father of all who believe. And this is the argument. And a lot of scriptures seem to be saying that. There is no longer Jew or Gentile in God's eyes. Uh, there's, there's really, there's, they're just another nation. There's nothing, there's no difference. The other extreme, we have two parallel peoples of God, that God's going to carry on with the Jews where he left off and there'll be a new temple, there'll be sacrifices, you know, you get the Christians and the Jews and they're two separate people. And all the physical promises, land and wealth, will be fulfilled. So those are the two sides and you may have heard of those and you may be wondering what I'm going to be saying here. Well, I'm going to look at a um, couple of passages and there we have to look that these are very these are very important so first of all Ephesians 2 there and he's writing to Gentiles now in Ephesus therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision in other words by the Jews which is made in the flesh by hands remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now, the covenants were what defined whether you were Israelite or not, or you're a member of the covenant, you're one of God's people. If you're not, you're outside. And so they're alienated from being in, in, in God, inside God's promises and outside God's promises. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who's made us both one. In other words, both Jew and Gentile are made one and has broken down in his flesh 
the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances. So the commandments like the, um, the, the laws about food, about Sabbath, about washing, cleanliness, all of the circumcision, all of those laws were what divided Jew and Gentile. Those are abolished in Jesus that he may create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And you know that even Jews were told they didn't have to, um, they, they, were, they were allowed to eat unclean food because Peter had a vision where he saw animals like pigs and so on coming down from heaven and he was told to eat them by God in this vision. And uh, he was told, told what? Um, I've called them clean, don't call them unclean. And so it's very clear that the law or, or that defined what it was to be separate as a Jew was gone. And here it says, creating himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So I think you can see where the replacement theology might get the idea that um, there's no distinction now. Um, but it doesn't actually say that. It says, uh, uh, we need to understand this, there are not two peoples of God, but one. There is one people of God now, which is both Jew and Gentile. But it doesn't say <clears throat> there's no such thing as a Jew. There is no such thing as ethnicity. That's a different thing to say that. And we have to be clear on that. Otherwise, we're not going to understand other parts of Scripture that have to be reconciled with this. But we mustn't let go of this, because any teaching that says there's two peoples of God is that that come to God differently uh, is totally against this passage here. This could not be clearer. There's not a sacrificial system anymore. There's not the laws are gone. The Old Testament um, Jewish laws are gone. And they're replaced by Jesus Christ. There's one way to God through faith in Jesus Christ and his death. He is the only sacrifice. There's no more sacrifices to be given. Hebrews is so clear on that. So why, what is that? What is this thing then about a future for Israel? So the other place to look is Romans 11. And we're going to end with Romans 11 today. Uh, it's clearly speaking about ethnic Israel. Romans 9 to 11, Paul is considering this, and this is his climax. Um, and he describes um, Israel being like an olive tree. And when they rejected Jesus, actually many, many Israelites accepted Jesus. And many, many did. And many priests accepted him. So the church was a combined Jew and Gentile church. But the nation as a whole didn't accept him. Um, so the idea is that the Jewish nation is like an olive tree and they've been cut off and the Gentiles have been grafted in, which is another plant. They've been grafted in. And because I don't know if you know about horticulture, but you can do this. You can take a shoot from another plant and in the right circumstances, it will grow from the stump of the original. So we have a stump of Israel and the Gentiles are growing from this. If you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree, in other words, the Gentiles, and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, Israel, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? 
He's quite clearly talking about ethnic Israel and ethnic Gentiles here. And he's saying there's a possibility of God grafting back the, the natural descendants. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Now, this is so important because this is saying those promises in the Old Testament that we read last time, these amazing promises, Ephraim, how can I give you up? You know, how can I? Uh, and these are irrevocable. God's not saying, oh, I'm not going to count Gentiles now as Ephraim. No, these are irrevocable promises that God has made. So that they too have now been disobedient. This is the Israelites. In order that by them, that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has not consigned all to disobedience. Sorry, God has consigned all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. This is an amazing passage. And um, you're going to say, well, Andrew, what does it mean? How's this like? How's God going to have mercy on all? Uh, what's it going to what's going to happen here? And I'm going to say, I don't know. I can't tell you. Uh, all I can tell you is this is what it says. And clearly it's talking about some sort of future. And this is clearly talking about ethnic Israel. And it's talking about a blessing for ethnic Israel. Not there's not about them carrying on with worship temple and sacrifices and so on uh, it's 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 about coming through jesus so uh, i'm just going to end now with a, the last point it's going to be very brief uh, we've we've looked at between the testament period we've moved on to jesus and then we've looked at the future of israel and now i want to look at our response and i just want to remind you of, of the goal that we have for today to see how God's promises and prophecies to Israel fit with the New Testament and beyond, leading to an outburst of praise in our hearts. And so I'm going to show you the last slide now, which is really trying to bring this these things together. So I'm continuing to read in Romans 11 now, and we I'm going to pick up the verse that we read last time. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. And this is what, what does this mean? What's, what's happening here? This is talking about the future, about God's mercy on, on Israel. How does Paul handle this? What does he say? And this is just amazing. These are some of the most amazing words in scripture, I think. Oh, the depth of the riches. And wisdom of and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. In other words, he is the most amazing God. We don't know what he's going to do. Oh, we know he is. His riches are amazing. His wisdom, his knowledge, his mercy. It's incredible. And he's going to do something extraordinary. And, we, and it's, he's inscrutable, which means inscrutable means we can't like, analyze him and work out what he's going to do so having described the future of israel paul just burst into praise and says wow i i'm just gonna i'm lost for words i'm just gonna praise and this is where i want us to end up today for who has known the mind of the lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him 
and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And I just think that just moves me so much to read those and to read those verses that uh, this is this is our God. This is our God who has such a passion for the lost and for his people. And I, we don't know how he's going to do it. I'm not trying to teach here that universal universalism, that every single person is going to be saved. And that's what I'm going to, trying to teach. But nevertheless, there's some kind of broad language here in verse 32. He's consigned all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. The demonstration we're going to see of God's mercy is going to be spectacular and is going to leave us speechless with praise as it does Paul. And we're going to kind of cry out, oh, the depth of the riches of and, and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments? How inscrutable his ways? Who's known his mind? Verse 36, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. And that's where I want to wind this up. He is an amazing God. I'm so excited about how these things are going to be fulfilled because I think we are going to be amazed to see how God fits these things together and just wows us all with the way he fits these promises, these incredible promises to Israel with the other statements that he's made about about what his salvation is and breaking down the wall of division between Jew and Gentile and one new man, how he's going to fit these all together in a way that, that leads us just to shout in praise. And we're going to, we're going to just cry out, Oh, the depth of the riches of God. Oh, how wonderful he is. And so that's, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing how this plays out. And I'm full of joy to know such a God who has a heart like this. So let's pray, shall we? Thank you, our dear Father, that you are God who are just your, your, your wisdom and riches are immeasurable. Your mercy cannot be measured. And that we thank you that when everything comes to an end and we see your grand plan, we will be able to do nothing but burst out in song and praised at how wonderful you are. Lord, in the meantime, Lord, may we willingly, gladly give ourselves to such a king and look to you as our leader, the one who's worthy of all our praise, all our worship, and all our life. Lord, we thank you. Amen.